O transcendent God, your revelation to us tells us that you are holy and other. Yet you are Emmanuel, God with us. You have condescended to us, taken the form of a servant, and met our need in our sin with your mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Make us to see this morning that it is because you are not like us that you can save us from our sin. May you be praised in your transcendent holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you might be tempted to think that the great space of time between when I preached Psalm 149 and today is due to the assembling of a powerful and awesome sermon appropriate to the ending of God's songbook. Uh, the reason for the time is instead more akin to waiting at the finish line of a marathon for the final stumbling, limping runner to cross so everyone can go home. But it is you who have called this cripple to this place. So let's begin. Let me emphasize, as I have previously, the distinction between psalms and praise. There is a great variety of genres in the psalms, but they primarily boil down to two different differences. Uh, to two differences, praise and lament. Uh, one source gave in his description of the psalm types, uh, he gave chiefly three different ones, psalms of praise and psalms of lament, and the third one was psalms of praise and lament. Um, seriously. Uh, there are other types, of course, enthronement or royal psalms. Uh, there are wisdom psalms. A number of the psalms read, read much like Proverbs. Um, and uh, pilgrimage psalms. Uh, the, the, the songs of ascents that we know after, after Psalm 119 there. Alex has spent probably four months bringing us through those on Sunday nights. Um, and these aren't hard and fast types, for we can't say of very many psalms that they're 100% one or the other. But praise and lament are the two cheapest forms or genres that we find in the book of Psalms. As I described before, the final five psalms in the Psalter are a set, a group that ends the Psalter with praise psalms. No lament whatsoever. They command us who not to praise, and also how and from where and who must praise the Lord. And they explain to us why we must praise him. As I preached through these psalms, 146 through 149, those were the two different testimonies of Scripture, the commands and the reasons for obeying the commands. In grammar, we could call that the imperatives and the indicatives. Now, why would God have to do this? Um, why would people made in God's image have to be told and not only told, but convinced and reasoned with in order to praise him. And then on top of that, commanded to. God's made it clear in his word that his creation speaks for itself. 
It's supposed to inspire obedience and worship all on its own. Only hearts deceitful and desperately sick could live in the world we live in that God created and not worship and obey him. So we have commands and we have reasons for commands. The arc of God's reasoning in this, in this five psalm suite at the end of the book of Psalms goes like this. God is creator and God is ruler and God is judge and God, and God is God. Um, uh, now that last point is broad and can be found in, in all of them. Uh, from the personal testimony of the psalmist through to the end, but we'll, we'll leave that for the end. Remember the first two psalms, uh, there was barely a command. These two psalms are full of reasons to worship the Lord and full of reasonings. It starts with, and, and this is the only time in these 59 verses of these five psalms, it starts with eyewitness testimony. It begins with that. The psalmist himself commands his own soul to praise God and then testifies what he will do. Praise God all his life until his life runs out. Then he gives us a negative command. He tells us again just once in these five psalms why we shouldn't worship anything or anyone else. The only thing in creation that is made in the image of God is us. There are two things in existence, God and his creation. And we, hard to believe sometimes, are the crown of his creation. The only thing created or made in God's image. So he tells us why we shouldn't worship even the greatest person. And this is the reason he gives us. Because whoever it is, they breathe. They are only as strong as their next breath. We are only as strong as our next breath. In Psalm 146, it says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day, his plans perish. So, we have God as creator. This is um, one of the first things, reasonings he gives us. So, what are the positive reasons to worship the Lord? Um, that was a negative command with reasoning attached. What are the positive reasons to praise the Lord? Remember, Yahweh is creator God whose creation testifies to this day of his skill and power and wonder. The creation testimony technically starts at the contrast with the great man who has to breathe just to stay alive. But it starts in earnest in verse 6 of Psalm 146 and runs through Psalm 148. The creator-creature distinction is really the primary way that we can explain ourselves and our faith. In the beginning, God, right? Everything else we know 
and don't know comes after that moment. Creator God testifies to us of himself as he describes the heavens in which are the stars and our smallness when compared to these great, expansive, unfathomably large stars which are no more than another part of the creation he created. And he, God, is outside of that. Remember, as I tried to drive home our smallness by describing uh, how in 1977 we sent Voyager 1 into space, and 35 years later, it finally left our solar system, right? It got past Pluto 35 years later. And in only 40 more years, no, 40,000 more years, it will pass by one of our nearest interstellar neighbors. We are truly, truly small. God is ruler. The testimony of God as creator gradually gives way to God as ruler through these psalms. The first care, the first care that Yahweh testifies to is the care he gives to his chosen people. Before describing his rule of anything else, he is God of Jacob, giving his people help and hope. Brothers and sisters, God is our help and our hope right now. No matter your distress, God testifies that you are not helpless or hopeless. The one thing Yahweh tells us in our New Testament that we most often miss is the constant drumbeat of Christ's return to bring his people to himself. Few things are mentioned more often, so we should comfort ourselves with this fact. It is found in nearly every book of the Bible and in critical places in those books. I preached through Titus and the central verses rest on the fact of God's sovereign, grace-filled sanctifying of his people as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing is more certain than God's loving rule over his creation and his promise to return in Christ. It is as true as God is real. God then testifies to his just, righteous, loving rule over his creation. But here again, there is a progression, an arc to God's testimony. Given special attention early on in the first two of these Psalms, 146 and 147, are the weak and the vulnerable. Listen to the descriptions. The oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the bowed down, the sojourners, the widow, the fatherless, the outcast, the brokenhearted, the humble, there in 147 verse 6. And there it stops. The description 
In Psalms 148 and 149 and 150, the most lowly description is humble only once more in Psalm 149. God stops, God stops referring to his people as weak or vulnerable in this suite of five Psalms. Notice in 148, Psalm 148, the beginning of Psalm 148, the spasm of praise right at the beginning of the psalm. It's a hinge as God's care for his people has worked out to the effect that in verse 14, he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. What a change. And then after that, and on into Psalm 149, he calls his people those near to God. He calls them the humble. He calls them the godly. He calls them his godly ones. Notice that the humble is the only descriptor in both conditions. This change from from this weak and vulnerable people to those who are near to God It is distinct. That arc is clear and the progression is undeniable. God will absolutely take you, brokenhearted believer, all the way home to be with him where you will exhaust your days in praising the Lord. God is judge. We see it in Psalm 149 at the end of the psalm there. God's rule continues in Psalm 149 where his people are rendering just judgment. In verse 6 of Psalm 149, the duty of just judgment is added to the duty of praise. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Let me be clear about this and put clear parameters around this. As our Lord Jesus was given all authority in heaven and on earth upon his resurrection, God has given to us to speak his word. The spirit of Jesus Christ speaking God's word through us as he, God Almighty, executes justice and righteousness In his creation, in this very qualified way, we fulfill verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 149. Executing vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. See how how much I qualified that. I don't want to inspire any little Napoleons. So I said earlier that most psalms fit broadly into the two types, praise and lamentation. So how do the judgment verses fit in? How do these fit in? Well, God is to be praised for all of who he is. And that includes the outworking of his righteousness. As he confronts unrighteousness, he judges it justly in truth. God's judgment is a function of his righteousness as it confronts what is not righteous. Joining with God in the judgment of what is not righteous 
Look there in Psalm 149, verse 9. His honor for all his godly ones. This is praise to God. Just judgment is a praise to God. Now God is, is God. Um, we get to Psalm 150 now. And here's where the sermon starts. So in many ways, Psalm 150 is the consummation of this suite of five praise psalms at the end of the Psalter. Hallelujah, that is praise the Lord, begins and ends here as with the previous four. But let me point out a few things first. I spoke of commands and reasons for commands. Except for the admonition at the beginning of of Psalm 146, to put not your trust in princes, or trust not, that's the command, trust not. Uh, The commands in this entire five psalm suite are all functions of praise the Lord. Praising the Lord musically or in dance, exulting or rejoicing in the Lord, or simply being happy in his help and in his hope, as in Psalm 146, verse 5. These are functions of praising the Lord. And, and they're together the only command in these final psalms. The only command to us is to praise God. I've mentioned the arc or the progression of God's reasoning through these psalms. Let me give you the arc of the commands. Setting apart the formal commands to praise the Lord at the beginning and the end of each. The first two Psalms, 146 and 147, are about 10% commands and 90% reasons for those commands. Psalm 148 is about 30% commands. 10 out of 30 lines are commands to praise the Lord. And 70% are reasons. Psalm 149 is about half and half, command and reasoning for those commands. With Psalm 150, what do you think the percentage is? It's all commands. Uh, We are only in Psalm 149 being told to praise the Lord. 100% of Psalm 150's 11 lines of poetry are commands to praise the Lord. At the beginning, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. This first line is the only one with the word God, right? Praise God in his sanctuary. The other lines carry forward uh, the God with pronouns, him. This word for God is the shorter, singular word translated El. It's, it's not the more common plural Elohim. The word El is a word more purely about power, about transcendent power. One Old Testament scholar translates Elohim as God, and this word El as transcendent God. El is Melchizedek's God Most High. El Elyon, right? El is Abram's God Almighty 
or El Shaddai. And look at our line of poetry this morning. Praise God in his sanctuary or in his holiness. It emphasizes God's transcendence. Whether we're talking about God's holy character or God's abode, the emphasis is that he is not like us. Let's look at the rest of the psalm quickly. Praise Yahweh. Praise El, this word, praise God in his holiness or in his sanctuary. And then every line is praise him, 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 praise him. It's nine lines with simply praise him. What is that him referring to? The nearest antecedent is God, this this transcendent word for God. God's transcendence is carried all the way through this psalm. The words are stacked up here in the first two verses. Sanctuary or holiness. Mighty heavens or the expanse of his might. Mighty deeds or as one scholar put it, his mightinesses. His excellent greatness or the abundance of his greatness. The language is being stretched and expanded The descriptors are being stacked one on the other as if to say, he is other. Turn to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is a familiar verse. Um, Look at what the passage is about and how God is referenced there first. Um, God is quoted. This is God speaking about himself. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And then he goes on to describe himself. What's, What's being said about God by his names there? His personal name, Yahweh, is repeated The only occurrence of that in all the Bible, that that capital L-O-R-D, it's his personal name, Yahweh. He repeats it. And then this word El, this word for his transcendence that we've learned. And it says of God, eternally existent one, eternally existent one, a transcendent God. So he describes himself as this completely holy other being. And he is a transcendent God who does what? He redeems his people. He's merciful and gracious. Look there. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All three kinds of sin he forgives. But God will not be mocked. The passage continues, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
if you are not struggling with your sin, go home. Go play golf or go watch a football game. Because if you sit here under the preaching of God's word and have no care for your sin, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You mock God to your own condemnation by sitting under his preaching and not caring about your sin. But brother or sister, if you are struggling with sin, if, if you are haunted by your sin, if you sinned this week or last night or this morning or with your last breath, there is a redeemer Jesus, God's own son. Sing that with me. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Keep singing. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. God will never leave you or forsake you. If you are afraid of that, you are fearing something that doesn't exist. God being unfaithful to a repentant sinner never happened. Transcendent God. We thank God in his imminence, in his nearness, saves us. And we're right in part. But if God is not transcendent, holy God, then he has no power to save. All of God saves us. And the praise at the end of God's holy songbook is of a transcendent holy God who is redeeming a people for himself. God is holy other God. And just as he saves us with all of himself, he demands that we worship him with all of ourself. The words there, sanctuary and holy place, have the same meaning in verse 1 there. Mighty heavens or firmament or expanse of his power. These words refer altogether um, with a place to where God is. Uh, this is another way human minds and language are stretched beyond their capabilities in trying to describe God who is everywhere. If God were in a place, it would be a holy place, a sanctuary. As God revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament, there was always distance involved. Moses goes up on the mountain. The people stay down at the bottom. Who goes into the most holy place in the temple to care for the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of God's presence on earth? Only the high priest, only once a year. 
as God's people finally failed in their earthly kingdom. God's prophet was given a vision of God's spirit leaving God's temple, the temple of his people. So what means the praise to command God in his sanctuary or in his mighty heavens? Are we to go to his sanctuary and his mighty heavens and praise him? Probably it means that we are to praise him who is in his sanctuary, who is in his mighty heavens. And that is to say, who is in his character, he never ceases to be holy and mighty and other. Uh, that's what God being in heaven, that's what that means for us, that he is other than us. Paraphrased, it could be something like, praise God who is not you, uncreated, an uncreated being entirely different from you. And me. So we're to praise him also for uh, what he's done and who he is. There in verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. The distinctive thing about God's mighty deeds is that they exactly match his words. God relates to his people by covenant and he is always faithful to keep his covenant promises. God told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. God did not hesitate, but revealed to them what death looked like, banishing them from the garden, yet providing the mercy they needed in the promise of the serpent-killing seed of the woman. This deed has reverberated throughout all history and gives hope for us today. God heard the cries of his people in Egypt and called Moses to himself. God told Moses he'd use him to bring his people out of Egypt. God did this through the Red Sea, and it was attested and remembered throughout the Old Testament. God's faithfulness to his people in this gave hope to his people before the time of Christ and gives hope for us today as we remember God's faithfulness of old. God's people need to be a remembering people, says one of the most forgetful people in the room. When he blesses us, we are foolish if we don't work hard to remember it. We'll work like dogs to remember unimportant things. or We'll repeatedly listen to songs that do us no spiritual good, but we won't run through our minds Times when God's grace gave us sweet comfort. And this refusal dishonors God. The mercies of Christ abounding to us need to be remembered, treasured. I'm not talking about memorizing scripture here, which is also holy and good. But remembering that God has shown kindness and mercy to you in the past. Preach to yourself. Force yourself to remember God's goodness to you when you are distressed. And you won't continue to be distressed very long, at least not as distressed. God has worked mighty deeds in your life that have carried you through even to this very day. Recall them 
recall God's goodness to you. We praise him for who he is. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. What does it mean to do this? This phrase, excellent greatness, is almost like two intensifiers working together. It's as if it could say, according to his excellent excellences or according to his great greatnesses. This is really just intensifying the otherness of God. In tandem, these first two verses of Psalm 150 are commanding us to praise the Lord for being God, for not being like us, for being the God he reveals himself to be in the Bible. Aren't you glad God is not as weak and small and sinful as we are? We almost need to change the Heidelberg Catechism, answer number one. To my only comfort in life and death is that God is nothing like me. But we shouldn't change that. The next verse is, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. With what are we to praise the Lord? Well, we have a list of instruments to answer that, specifically in music. First, let's look at the fact that these verses are strictly musical. The Psalms are not strictly musical, but are primarily so. Praise is not strictly musical and not even close to being strictly musical. Let me say that again. The Psalms are not strictly musical, but they're primarily so. Praise, on the other hand, is not strictly musical and is not even strictly musical. There is much in life that is not musical, that is still praise. So why at the end of the Psalter, in the culmination of the entire book, are we given a strictly musical paradigm in which to frame God's praise. Well, let's answer that. First, we should note that in many English translations, uh, there's an exclamation point at the end of every sentence in this psalm. Uh, so there is an emphatic nature to the language here. Many biblically less frequently mentioned instruments are missing from this list, so it's not exhaustive. It's an incomplete list of instruments that the Hebrews used to make their music. Let's look closer at that. The trumpet here is a shofar made from a ram's horn that you blow through. Um, the lute and harp are stringed instruments, metal or gut strings pulled across wooden figures, uh, struck or plucked with the fingers or some kind of pick. Uh, the tambourine or timbrel or tambour is a skin stretched across a round wooden figure, struck with fingers or a mallet. Uh, didn't always have, back then, uh, symbols in it, uh, like our tambourines do. Um, strings, in verse 4, are another kind of stringed instrument, like the lute and the harp, but different. Um, the pipe is a wind instrument of some kind, as is the trumpet, and the flute are wind instruments. But either the strings or the pipe... We know nearly nothing about. 
Um, and speaking of Hebrew words, we know nearly nothing about symbols. Um, it, it, it comes from the idea of making a sound, and it's used for an announcement or, or, or the, 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 the sound that crickets make or, or, or bugs make with the, the rattling of their wings, maybe. Uh, the word for symbols used here is really for almost any metal thing that makes a tinkling or a clinking sound. Really, the descriptors here of the symbols are the more important words. Uh, the sounding symbols um, are simply symbols that can be heard. The word sounding uh, is also used for an announcement because an announcement is heard, and these symbols can be heard. Um, the loud clashing symbols now are, are a more explosive sound, so we get the idea that, that maybe they're, they're larger symbols. We think of uh, symphony symbols, like right? the big crash. Um, so that, that's, that's a little bit more that idea. And, and let me insert here, because you'll note I didn't, I skipped over dancing. Let me insert here my encouragement about dancing from my last sermon. You remember that, don't you? It was just a little while ago. Um, that dancing easily tends to vulgarity or sexual movements and so needs to be treated with caution. Uh, the joy of dancing and praise to our God needs to be encouraged in our homes, in gatherings of families, and in public up to the highest levels of artistic expression. We think of ballet and just some, some really beautiful, elegant dances. Um, but again, it, it can very often... And as it does, it's sinful, tend to vulgarity, sexuality. Um, I'll note again, though, uh, as I did then, that there is no biblical testimony for dancing in worship services. Um, it's just not there. Um, so, so we have these instruments, these wind instruments, stringed instruments, and percussion instruments, three different kinds, all to be used praising our transcendent God. God could have included all the biblical instruments that we've heard of uh, and the most prominent ones, but he didn't. He gave us an incomplete assortment of pretty much every kind of musical instrument his Old Testament people had. In Psalm 150, God's people are commanded to praise him with every different kind of instrument they had. I don't think you'll find a stronger argument for using everything we have and everything we are to praise the Lord. God gave us with his eminence as he draws near to us in Christ and with his eminence, his holy otherness and the Lord's demands praise from all of who we are. This indiscriminate, varied list of instruments should give us hope that God will use us to praise him no matter what he calls us to. Speaking of which, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's funny how God emphasizes the difference between himself and his people. Uh, in the creation week, it is it is God who gives life to every living thing by breathing life into them. 
when mankind has become sinful to the extent that God killed everything outside of the ark with a flood to whom he had given the breath of life, right? Uh, he, the Bible says he took that breath away. And I said just a little while ago from the beginning of our Psalm suite, Psalm 146 verses 3 and 4, put not your trust in princes. And then when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. I'll tell you the way Isaiah told God's people. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? The command to praise the Lord is self-evident. And I think I've made that point. So let me just make a contrast here. We have a duty to praise the Lord. Um, let me set that against a dark background. Um, and a tendency, when I sin in this way, uh, it can look like this. Um, there's a song about an old man. The poor old man kept mostly to himself. Um, a book unread, dusty on the shelf. Seeds in packets never sown. The, the old mobile he barely drove. Right? In the garden, down on hands and knees, he hurries, taking care that no one sees. The money in the rusty tin, he lays it in the earth again. See, the point is that this man's life is full of blessings. And he doesn't use them to praise the Lord. But then he'll, in a really ironic way, he'll put his effort into burying money as if he had a Lord who would rather receive back the exact amount of money he gave instead of giving to the Lord a faithful return. God trains us by his grace, sinner. Our transcendent holy God condescends to our low estate. Receive his mercy today.